I don't remember the exact day that I first used my GPS, but I do remember the struggle that I had trying to figure it out. Do you, do you remember when you first used your GPS? You stuck that big like monitor thing up on your uh, dashboard and you tried to type in all the address and direction of where you wanted to go. And then you just pl prayed deeply that somehow God would make it all work out and it would head you in the right direction. Now we live in a point where I, my phone is my GPS. And truth of the matter is, I, I swear by this. Because, I mean, truth, when you think back about our lives and, and the way we used to travel before, remember the tools we used to have? What, like, we used to have a map that once you unfolded it and got it all the way open, you had to, you know, stop at a rest area to put it back together because you needed to be an expert to do that. Or maybe you were one of those people that you... Uh, you printed off MapQuest, remember those? 14 pages of directions so that you could go from Des Moines, Iowa to Colorado, you know? It's really just Interstate 80, but that's a whole nother discussion in and of itself. Truth of the matter is, I think we all find ourselves in a day with our GPS that we trust it emphatically, that it can get us where we need to go without any kind of concerns. It used to be when we first had our GPS, we'd get downtown Chicago and those big cities, they'd throw off our GPS. But now there are so many satellites in the sky and bigger bro Big Brother knows exactly where you are that you can just, if you miss your turn, it'll correct it in seconds. Now that's kind of scary at the same time. Can we all take a deep breath and go, wow, that's really scary. But our GPS allows us to take a trip, a journey to a destination that we may not know where to go or how to get there. We may have a general idea. We may have a, a hopeful anticipation of what it's going to be like, but it is our GPS that helps us get there. Now, there are two essential elements that are needed for a GPS really to put a journey together, right? The first one is called basically your location finder. You are here. So when you open up your GPS and you jump on your phone, Oftentimes, wherever you are, it begins to pulsate, right? It tells you that, you know, you're at 3601 South Staley if you were to open your GPS right now. And then if you wanted to see how long is it going to take me to get to Billy Baru's for lunch, you know, you could punch that in and join us maybe for lunch. I don't know. But truth, you could punch that in and it would tell you how, how long it would take to walk there, how long it would take to ride there, how long it would take to, to take a bicycle there. It would give you different options. But the location finder is intended to assess exactly where you are in that moment. The destination finder, the other piece, is to anchor where you're trying to get and then help you find both the fastest, most efficient, and the preferred direction by which you want to travel. Both are essential for a journey that you're on. And I think that's a great metaphor for us to start with with our lives because I think many of us right now, spiritually speaking, are wrestling with our location finder. Who am I? What is my life about? What's my life's purpose? What am I living for? And I will tell you that understanding where you are today is only part of the battle. And sometimes that's what we do as Christians. We come in on a Sunday morning, we sit down, we hear a message, we assess ourselves over the next 20, 30 minutes, and then we go on the rest of the week and we just go, well, maybe we hit it, maybe we didn't. Understanding your location is directly tied to the destination that you intend to get to. And so without an understanding of where you're going, who you're wanting to become, and what your life should be based on, will determine whether or not over and over assessing your location really matters. So that's what we want to do today. We want to set a course 
We want to set a trajectory. We want to begin to look at our life and say, hey, if my walk with God isn't strong right now, if my connection to the local church isn't, isn't really flourishing right now, if my relationship with my spouse or my, my loved ones or my kids or my coworkers, if these things are not really connected right now, I know where I am, but where do I want to take it? Where do I want to go? And what kind of life mission is God calling me to live out so that this journey gets somewhere, right? Because many of us, I think we're just kind of stuck in the spin cycle of doing the same thing over and over and over again, whether it's in life, or whether it's at home, or whether it's even our faith. I want you to grab your Bibles. I want you to open up to Titus chapter 3. This is the book that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. And Titus is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young man who has planted a church on the Isle of Crete. What's important about this is this island is kind of uh, full of ruffians and roughnecks, okay? It's kind of a wild, rebellious bunch. And so it's the, it's the perfect environment for a church to be planted. It's a perfect environment for people to come to faith and to see the transformation of Jesus. But once this church has been planted, many, many people have begun to give their life to Christ and live out this new life they've found because of Jesus. The world around them begins to kind of hijack their mission and purpose, and so here's what begins to happen. Other religious leaders from other backgrounds in faith, people of prominence and influence of that community kind of jump in and they begin to hijack the Christian faith. They say, okay, it's true. You know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides our grace, our salvation, our truth. But the reality is you don't need to be different. The reality is God's not expecting anything of you. The reality is what you need to do is to become Hebrew or Jewish first. You need to go through the old customs and the old laws. You need to consider circumcision as a rite of passage uh, to your faith. And, and Paul's saying, Titus, call a timeout. This is not the, the, the priority of the early church. This is not the priority of Jesus. It's not to take them back. It's to move them forward. And so Paul begins to talk about the importance of transforming uh, the community through the household and by the leadership within a church. We would say it this way if we were to summarize our overall conversation. It's this, that when we talk about being different, what we're talking about is what we believe impacts how we behave and shapes who we become. That's, that's what we've been summarizing over the last couple of weeks because we've been talking about how we need to believe different. We need to understand what truth and doctrine is, and then we need to understand how we're going to act in response to that. We would say it maybe in an equation like this. When you believe truth plus act in truth, you begin to live out truth. That's what God's calling us all to, is to understand what's really valuable, what, what the life, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus truly means to people as Christians. And as we understand that transforming work, we begin to change, be transformed, and act differently Therefore, what happens is the way we live, the way that we approach life, the relationships around us or at home or even within our church, we have a different priority than just saying, thanks, God. Thank you for your gift. We have an anticipation that this gift to us is going to transform us and we should grow and we should mature. And throughout this book of Titus, Paul is telling Titus, that it's this idea of doing good. Doing good. 
Now, this isn't about just simply being nicer or more friendly or getting your Eagle Scout badge, okay? Being good or pursuing what is good is pursuing what is of God. That's what he's trying to say. Because good, as when we're talking about character, is what is often a appropriated and attributed to the very character of God. His good character, his good nature. As so Paul's saying, Titus, you know, we need to prioritize this pursuit of doing good. So let me summarize, in case you didn't have a chance to be here over the last couple weeks. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, what were they about? Chapter 1, Paul kind of pulls Titus under his shoulder and he says, hey, this, here's what you need to do. If you're going to have a church that's going to be healthy and vibrant and it's going to live out truth in a world that is so confusing and clouded, you need to make sure that your leadership understands the very nature of God, who God is, and their life is surrendered to that. Why? Because speed of leadership often sets the pace for the membership, right? If we are all following after God, we want to all be in rhythm and pursuit of a leadership that first and foremost desires to surrender its life to Jesus. Jesus' character, Jesus' nature, Jesus' will. And therefore, the rest of us would also follow in and learn what that looks like as well. But the second chapter moves from this understanding of leadership within the overall church and begins to talk about leadership in the household. How older men and younger men should interact with each other. How older women and younger women, and even the context of slaves becomes part of that discussion. You can jump on Facebook if you want to see a little bit of my commentary about why that's placed in there and what's happening in that moment. But what's happening in this household is Paul is saying, Titus, if you want to specifically transform a community, your leadership in your church must set a pace that looks like Jesus. And if you want to make sure that that church is transformative beyond just a few leaders, make sure your household, the first true battleground of character, the incubator, the best place for people to learn their faith, to understand who Jesus is, to begin to live it out in real time, because honestly, one hour and 10 minutes on a Sunday morning is not enough to grow your faith. And so Paul says, you know, the, the real work happens in the house. And then he jumps into chapter three, leadership, household, individual living. Now, if you were to put two words together to really describe what Titus and this discussion has been about, it's about be different. That's what we're, what we're called to do. As Christ followers, the overall direction of we should be different, not just from the people beside us, but be, be, because of the world around us. And being different isn't just like being weird. Being different is learning how to live out the very character and nature of Jesus in the way that you think, and the way that you act, and the way that you speak. Chapter 3 could be summed up with these two words, though. Live different. If we're going to believe different and act different, it's so that we can live different. 24-7, 365 that this isn't just something that we put it on on a Sunday morning and come around and shake a bunch of hands and act like, hey, I love Jesus, don't you? But that we would be the kind of people that every day, whether people know our faith or not, they would know specifically that we have a transformed life. So here's, here's what it says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says it this way. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good or of God's character, 
to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle towards everyone. Now, now Paul starts with a stage. Now, remind people. Meaning, he's already said this once. He's probably already said it twice, but he needs to say it one last time to say, I really need you to get this. This is a new invitation to humanity to live as a new community of faith. It is our calling to now be different in the world that we're a part of. And this is what the invitation is. You live on the Isle of Crete and we are roughnecks. We are liars. We are hard people. We are salt of the earth, kind of roll up our sleeves. We smell bad. We're just, we just, we're tough. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm getting off on my own mind. I'm getting a little excited today. I love this passage. It's just fun. So it begins to really challenge that if, this, if, if our community is about wild living and about, about all these lies and these, these just pursuits of everything of self, Paul's saying, can I, can I just remind you to be the kind of people that honor authority? Can I just remind you that if you want to be different, be the kind of people that you don't slander people next to you. You don't speak ill of one another. You're always compassionate, and you would consider that maybe their journey is different than your journey, and maybe your judgment is not the first thing that they need. Shouldn't these verses kind of be in the terms of agreement on Facebook? I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that radically change how we handle Facebook? But just in case this great calling to a new humanity and a new way of living is not compelling enough, Paul kind of does a little tongue-in-cheek and takes them back to remember something. Here's what he says in verse 3. At one time, oh, this is going to be painful. At one time, we too were foolish. Oh, he said it. We were disobedient. Come on now. Deceived. And oh, this is, this is a powerful phrase. Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So Paul says, hey, let me, let me invite you to a different way of living, okay? Let me, let me invite you into a new community. Let's, let's live differently. Let's live drama-free lives if we can. And part of that is being able to bend our knee to authority because we have abended, we abended our knee to the ultimate authority. So let's live this out in the world that we're a part of it. That means we're going to value people differently, whether they believe like we do or think like we do or act like we do. We just, we want to be compassionate and considering. But, but in case you aren't motivated enough, because that just compels you to be more like Jesus, can I take a moment and call a timeout? And Paul says, do you remember who you were? Do we have to go back and talk about 20-year-old Danny? Do we have to remind them what a punk he was, how obnoxious he was, how full of himself he was? Well, we kind of did there, didn't we? Maybe you, uh, you ever have that picture that you just hope your kids don't find? You know what I'm saying? Paul's saying, hey, let's be honest, there's a box in your garage that if Junior opens it and sees you back then when you were his age, some of your words might fall a little bit short, right? Some of us are smiling a little bigger than I'd like you to be smiling right now. Yeah, a little caveat. My wife decided to talk about my dating experiences in high school with our boys one day. Nah, yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, yeah, she just filleted me right in front of them forgive her. Can you guys forgive her? I always talk nice about her, but that's one moment that I did not shine well in front of my boys, okay? We think about our past and who we were, and we're quickly reminded that we were pulled towards other things that were not of God. Who we used to be and the things that we held in high priority 
They derailed us from a lifestyle that ultimately led us to health and to liberation before Jesus. It enslaved us with addictions and habits and and just things in our lives that pulled us all away from God. One way to illustrate that is in the 1800s, ships went from being made predominantly with wood to being made with steel and iron. And so what happened is they would begin to forge out these ships built of iron and steel, is that over the process and through their time, uh, they would begin to often uh, embrace the magnetic field of the earth. Depending on how they were directed and how the process was going through, literally the metal became a giant magnet. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to the average land person like me, right? Except in the 1800s, the predominant tool was not a phone like a GPS to help people find their trajectory. It was a compass. Now, the predominant fuel source or the ability for a compass to find true north is found by having magnets inside of it. Did you know that? So what happens when you, when you have a compass that has magnets that kind of help it find, find its bearing on the magnetic field of the earth, when you stand on a, on a ship that is now setting its own trajectory based off the magnetic field, your, your compass gets off true north. They say that the reality was that sometimes your compass could be as much as 180 degrees off the trajectory of where you're trying to head. Collisions showing up at the wrong places, all all these kind of things set people's courses to completely different trajectories because of the tension between the magnetic field of the ship and the compass. Over time, they began to find some just day-to-day solutions that would help, and what they found is they could put a ladder on the deck, and the more distance they got from the ship's hull, the more accurate the compass would be. So ultimately, they would climb up into what's called the crow's nest, and get as far away from the magnetic field of the ship so that they could get the most accurate view of true north. Now, by 1838, they went through an entire process and they figured out how to put counter magnets in the actual compass that would compensate for the magnetic pull of the ship. And that's why ships are now able to be both of of steel and iron and able to get exactly where they want to go. But don't miss the truth of this illustration. Don't miss the truth of what Paul is trying to do by giving a balance of who we're becoming and who we were. That oftentimes, in order for us to head on a journey that pursues Christ, we have to distance ourselves from the magnetic pull of the world around us. They call it the principle of deviation. Isn't that what oftentimes our Christian walk is life? The principle of deviation pulls us away from where we intended to go. And so ultimately what happens to us as Christians, well-intending Christ followers, people who genuinely love Jesus, often say, this is who I want God to make me into being. And then we find ourselves drifting and becoming somebody else. Friends, our compass has to be the true north. It has to be centered on Jesus. And so Paul gives some very prescriptive ways to make sure that we understand what is our compass. Here's what he says in verse 4. Speaking of God, But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, meaning Jesus, he saved us. Now, let me say this. Jesus saved us. We didn't save ourselves, okay? It's important for us to understand this. Not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy, meaning not because uh, we were nicer than our neighbor or our dad's got a lot of money in his wallet or uh, you had perfect attendance at school. God saved us because he is merciful. This is his character. 
Here's what he says and how he does it. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Heirs and having the hope of eternal life. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Call a time out. So God save us, saves us not because of our, our ability or our talent. God saves us because God is merciful. In God's mercy, he also provided a way that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, our wrongs would be made right, but then gives us his spirit, his Holy Spirit to live within us that begins to change us from the inside out, renewing and washing each and every one of us. So this is what it says in verse 8. So this is a trustworthy saying. I, and I want to stress these things so that those of you, those of us, who have trusted God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good or of God. And these things, well, they're excellent. And they're profitable for, for everyone. Paul basically just say this, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, living this way is beneficial for all of humanity. But because we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we believe this is the payment of our sin and life everlasting, because we believe in its transformative work, it begs us to live differently. Because when we do, when we live out this hope, this reality that what is coming is greater than what is here, the rest of the world begins to understand the transforming work of Jesus. Now, Paul begins to camp this in two different things. He begins to talk about this first appearance of Jesus. Now, if you're with us last week, we talked about two appearances, right? The first appearance is when Jesus came, gave his life to die on the cross and cover our sins. We call that moment grace, right? And we speak of Jesus as our Savior. And many of us, this is where we live in our faith. We're just so thankful for, for who God is and what God has done. And it's, it's like a hot tub in the middle of fall, man. We just can't get enough of God's grace. We will soak there for hours. But then he describes the second appearance. The second appearance is the return of Jesus. Now, the return of Jesus is, a, is different than God's grace. The return of Jesus is when every person will stand before God and give an account for their lives. This is when we talk about Jesus as our judge, or just as we say, Jesus our Savior, we say Jesus our Lord. And this is the tension that Paul is trying to help young Christians understand. That in order for us to grow into the fullness of who God has shaped us to be, we must recognize that it's only by God's grace that we have been saved, but that there is a relationship, a maturation, an expectation of all that we are and all that we have to be leveraged back to God's glory. And in that, one day we will stand before God to give an account on how God has been leveraged through us. Paul says, here's this understanding. The coming of our Savior is this gracious, merciful work of salvation. But it is God's work. It's his good nature that propels us. And it's really an act of kindness that we would have a chance to live and move forward. So he, he describes this process as this washing and this renewal. Many of us may think of this as maybe our personal salvation. Remember the day we gave our life to Christ? 
Paul describes it in kind of a, a washing and renewal. For many of us, we look back and we say, I remember that day I was baptized, right? A picture of our own death, burial, and resurrection. A picture of our own commitment back to Christ. A picture of the moment of God washing and renewing us before him. And while this conversation resembles that moment, what he's really describing is the day in and day out washing of God's spirit working in us and through us, transforming the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way we, we, the way we interact with one another, our ability to love, our ability to live out God's character, our ability to not just be compassionate and merciful, but to be the kind of people that live out justice and truth and allowing God to grow us and shape us beyond what we would naturally do. The interesting portion about verses four through seven is that it's actually a poem. It's intended to be an anthem for early Christians that they would remember and they would play it like a song on the radio over and over in their head. That this is what God is doing. And God is at work in changing us. So live differently. Friends, we are being called to honor the authority of all authorities to live God's will and God's way. Because here's the truth we need. To see our world transformed, we need to live transformed lives. If you're like me, and you've wept over junior hires' funerals because they got shot this last year, if you're like me, and you dropped your kids off to a public school this week where the boys in blue stood because there were threats, if you're like me, that you look around this world and your heart breaks at what seems to be so dark and so overwhelming, Paul is very clear about how the world's going to be transformed. It is going to be through God in us, us living as different people in the world, being light in the darkness. And when we stand in those moments, in the tension and chasm of our world, these are the opportunities by which God says, I'm here. And the world goes... That's so different. That's so different. Here's what it says in verse 9, though, in case we're not getting this. Paul says this. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments, quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable. These are useless. And then he gives this deep, deep warning. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure, you may be sure that such people are warped, they're sinful, that they are self-condemned. Those last few verses are not as fun as the other ones, are they? Here's what Paul's saying. Guys, we're in this mess because religious leaders want to make tradition more important than the truth. We're in this position because people have tried to take the place of God. We're in this moment because well-intending Christians haven't prioritized the majors, but have lived in the minors. And the transformative work of Jesus has not matured in their lives. And then he says, so people who are caught in those kind of things, when it gets divisive, you got to warn, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that person. I'm, I'm not going to get into that, right? If they bring it back again, you, you warn them a second time. But if they continue to live in that life, 
not going beyond the religiosity of their world, stuck in the traditions, trying to make it about man-made stuff rather than the God character that God's trying to transform us. You got to just step away. Why? The word is they're self-condemned. In other words, they're having their moments and God already recognizes what's going on. That's deep. That's real. So let's go to our time of response, can we? I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, then are we the kind of people that are living for the hope of eternity? Paul's saying, Titus, you can invite people into a life-changing experience, a relationship with God. It's going to take who they were, and it's going to grow them into something completely different. But that hope of eternity that rests in us, knowing that God, our Savior, has given us the grace to pay for our sin, gives us confidence that we can stand before God, our Lord, and in his truth, and not be frightened. But it's a walk, it's a journey, it's a life, it's a destination that we're pursuing where God is doing the work in us. God is transforming and changing us. God is dumping us out as we, as we surrender our will back to him. I mean, isn't that who we are as a church? We help people surrender to Jesus and become more like him every day. So whether that's to change our friendships, whether that's to be a kick in the backside to get us to serve or to step up and get into a group, whether it's to put an arm around us, to weep with us when we're wounded. God is working in and through all those things. So let's go back to this, this GPS, can we, for a moment? Two elements are needed for a journey to be able to have an accurate process. One is our location finder, and truth is right now, I think many of you, this is where you are, you, you continue every week to kind of just assess where you are before God. And that's important. We always need to be assessing where we are before God. But when we talk about the transforming work of Jesus in our lives, there's a moment that happens in a room like this for me. It's not because of what I say or because of what I taught, but it's because oftentimes the Holy Spirit is beginning to tug on a few heartstrings. And when we talk about this transformative work of God, many of us would begin to think, I'm just so tired. I'm just so exhausted. I can't change anymore. And I get that. I get what it's like to do your best, to try your hardest, to dig deep and pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about behavior management here. We're talking about trait transformation, which is the Holy Spirit taking those of us who are enslaved to our pleasures, enslaved to our living, enslaved to our own will and desire, and God literally unlocking a gate, unlocking a key and saying, if you'll walk with me, you'll find freedom. The reality is that when I talk about trait transformation and the work of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes there are people who have surrendered their life to Jesus in a room like this, 
And they, if asked, would say, I don't know what you're talking about. And friends, that should be something that would require you to reach out to somebody and say, help me grow. Help me understand. Why am I so tired? Can I give you a, a little answer? You're so tired because what you're doing is trying to be better on your own instead of trusting who God is. And so what you do is you set your compass by the people around you and you're not as bad as him or not as bad as her and you don't have that issue and certainly your kids aren't as bad as those kids and frankly, you didn't grow up in that. See what's going on? But when our true north is set before God and we look at our location, we go, you know what, God? I'm not you. I'm not Jesus. I can't do this on my own. And the point of surrendering your life to God is to allow him to rule your life, to be your king, to be your master, so that you will live a life of surrender to his glory and to his honor. Now, the other thing that's important for this, this journey is a destination. Friends, our hope is already set in Christ. Our trajectory is already known what we need to do. Matter of fact, Jesus said it this way. He said, none of us, none of us should jump into this lightly. We, frankly, uh, we should count the cost. We should understand that every day is a life of surrender. Every day is going to be a moment where you before God are going to have things that you change in the way that you think and you act and you speak in the relationships that you're around at home and work and play. And you're going to begin to realize that living a life after Jesus is not just about sitting in the hot tub of grace, but it's understanding that there's a truth that convicts the very depths of our soul that we are not God. We are not the ones who know what's best. We do not have the strength to change this world. And so frankly, it may change you in the way that you approach your relationships. Whether you're dating, or married, or a parent, or a coworker, or a boss. And friends, can I just tell you, I think that's why most of us don't set our trajectory. Because the warmth of the grace is comfortable. And frankly, we're concerned about the journey God may take us on. Can I just tell you, friends, God's grace is good. It's awesome. But God's grace, backed with the power of his truth to change who you were, friends, that... That's awesome. So what do you want? What do you want? Do you want a grace that's enough to just change you where you stand today? Yeah, we do. But do you also want a truth that will change this world? So that our kids and our grandkids and nations that we've never even met and people that we'll never see may be able to see the real life that comes from Jesus. That's what God's calling us to. So in just a moment, some of you are going to 
You're going to come forward as the music begins to play and you're going to maybe take a posture in front of these benches and begin to pray. Maybe a prayer of gratitude, maybe a prayer of thanks. Some of you, many of us actually will go to these tables where there's a candle. We have communion there where we're reminded that it's by Jesus's body, by his shed blood, that we are transformed. There was a price that was paid that we could not pay on our own. And as we eat that bread and we drink that juice, may we be reminded that as we consume Jesus, that it is a transformative work to live like Jesus. And may we grab a connect card. Maybe some of us be bold enough to sign up to serve, to join a group, to make a decision of faith, of baptism, to, to ask to sit down and, and talk about some of this journey with somebody, to, to bring up a prayer request. And maybe you'll take that connect card and you'll put it in one of the four given respond boxes. Or maybe you'll give of your tithes and offerings. Or maybe you'll open the Give app and respond that way. But friends, we are all welcome to come every Sunday and to assess where we are. But may I encourage you? May I encourage you to step out of your comfort, to pick up your cross, and to allow the truth of God to convict you from the inside out so that the world can say, that's different. Let me summarize this series this way. This is our clapboard. And every time it claps, to capture a scene or to capture a moment, it's doing two things. It's making sure what is seen and what is heard is in sync. Friends, if we're going to be different, or shall we say distinct in the world around us, we must be in sync with God in everything that we say and everything that we do.